Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Sam Cole Johnson. Uh, it's March 24th, 2022. We're at the Nicholson Library at Linfield University. Thank you so much for joining us today, Sam. Thanks for having me. Uh, first question to get us rolling is why wine? I don't actually think it had to be wine. Um, I, my family has always cooked. Um, it's always, there's been wine, although as well as beer and cocktails and everything else. It was just something that was around while we were cooking, but we were always spending so much time in the kitchen. And in high school, I was really into baking. Um, and I decided that I wanted to graduate from high school and go to culinary school. But my dad was not a huge fan of that plan. And he said, there's no way, like you can do that on your own if you want. Uh, but if you go to business school, then I'll help you pay for it. And I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do after graduating from higher education. And so, so I said, OK, well, uh, I guess I don't know. And I don't want to be in debt. And so I'll go to business school. But I was writing this because someone sent me interview questions the other day. And I was writing back to him, and I thought, even then, even through university, it was like I was doing what my parents wanted me to do. But I was, all my weekends, all after school hours, I was working at a chocolate shop. And I was learning how to temper and the history of cacao. <laughs> and then after that, I left that for a position where I was waiting tables at a brewery. But I got to know what the brewing process looked like. and what different types of beer looked like. And I quit that job because I went and joined the Worldwide Organization for Organic Farming. <laughs> and I did an internship uh, at a vineyard in Bordeaux, and then one at a dairy in Switzerland, <laughs> and then on a vegetable farm in Italy. And so I finished university with my degree in operations management and went into finance for a natural foods company, but it really doesn't matter because you're still behind, behind a desk all the time. <laughs> and it's pretty predictably that uh, that didn't go super well. And it was within, it was like within the first week I knew I hated that job. And within eight months, my grandma lives in Olympia and she'd come down and we'd go wine tasting. And the tasting room hosts, I think maybe people underestimate what an important job that is sometimes, because you can introduce people to wine who would never be drinking wine in such a way that they go, oh my god. For me, it was the depth of information attached to a beverage. And I was like, I could study this forever. I also love studying. <laughs> so it was more of a depth of, depth of information and uh, how academic a beverage wine could be than it was the wine itself when I initially went tasting. It became about the wine as well. 
but it was like, it's farming, it's biology, it's chemistry, it's politics and geography and everything else. And that amount of information intrigued me. And so within eight months I was, I had left, I was back on a restaurant floor and I was studying wine. I asked so many times. I bugged, I bugged the beverage manager into giving me an assistant beverage manager title and cards so that I could go tasting more places for free. <laughs> And it was a Kimpton, so it didn't really, uh, they have a list of mandates, because that's how that works. And so you don't actually get to make that many decisions. And I realized that that corporate idea of how things should work wasn't going to allow me very much freedom. And so I moved up the street, um, actually to Park Avenue for Fine Wines. Mm -hmm. And Stacy Gibson, who's now a part owner there, was just one of the most encouraging bosses I have ever had. Uh, I've had. I've been really lucky in bosses, but she was amazing. <laughs> so, I can imagine that. Yeah. So before we move on to the story, because I'm very curious to see what happens next, you mentioned all the travels. I'm curious about that amount of travel and those, those kinds of areas you were traveling in. What were you taking away from sort of the places you went and the things you were learning uh, as you were in Switzerland, as you're in Italy, as you're in Germany? What were the, the things you learned and, and, and kind of took away from those experiences? You know, it wasn't, I remember drinking wine at the vineyard I was at in Bordeaux and oh, at yeah. the Alpage in Switzerland and in Italy as well. I remember drinking wine, but it was much more about the people who I was interacting with, um, host families or at the Chateau in Bordeaux. It was, there were eight of us. There were two people from New Zealand. There were two girls from Germany. Um, there was someone from Algeria, there was uh, two people from Spain, and these people were in and out during the time I was there. It's like people would come for a week or people would come for a month or the whole summer. And the communication was so much fun and <laughs> it's like so many different languages that were being translated back into English because the English seemed to be the only thread that everyone shared a little bit of. Um, lucky for me. But I learned some Spanish, I learned some French, I learned a little bit of German. It was, uh, was kind of crazy. <laughs> um, and then in Switzerland, learned a lot of French um, because there was only one other intern and we would spend all day working in the dairy together, bringing the cows in just the importance of language and connection and agriculture. I think that's super important. As you became interested in wine, tell me about the learning process for you. What, how did you educate yourself? What did you find worked best? And what did you enjoy about the education process of learning about wine? Yeah, so I've gone through a lot of very structured education. Um, I started, when I came down and started tasting in the Willamette Valley, the first thing that I thought to myself was like, I need, I need a wine education. And so I started with the quartermaster sommeliers. And I took their intro class while I was still in finance. Um, and I passed that. And then I tried to go for my certified exam. I didn't pass that because I needed serv more service experience than I'd had in a more fine dining setting. Um, it was 
And then I found, so I sought out a tasting group and that tasting group really became my network for everything that I've, everywhere I've gotten since then came through wine education because studying for the certified exam with that group uh, introduced me to a woman named Kim Oshiro who has Bottle Thief. And she had gone through the CMS, but she was doing WSET. And she got me through my certified exam with top marks too. She spent a lot of time um, asking me questions and ho hosting mocks for me. And then she said, okay, so you've done this, you passed with top marks, you need to go into WSET. And, um, and so I went through WSET and I went through WSET diploma. I met Julia Burke who works at Willamette Valley Wineries Association. I met like just through tasting group. I, that's how I got my job for Stacey Gibson was because there was someone in tasting group who was leaving and he said, hey, you should go work up here. And so I left my current job and took his job. Um, and that led to meeting the sales director for Lingua Franca for the 2018 vintage. And he called me and said, hey, we have an opening because I'd applied with them and I hadn't quite made the cut, but someone dropped out and he, he said, you had to come work production, which then in 2019 um, led to me being able to pitch a harvest journal for Jancis Robinson and say, hey, I, you haven't done this for 11 years. Last time you did it was when Richard Hemming wrote a harvest journal and I worked harvest last year and I'd really like to write a harvest journal for you this year. Um, so still going through diploma. This was an education question. Uh, you can take it wherever you want to go with it. It also, I think when you get further into wine education, it becomes as much about being able to educate others and help others understand and love wine as it does educating yourself. Um, but they kind of, they, they're simultaneous and teaching someone else will reinforce your own, own knowledge and that, all, all that jazz. And mm -hmm. so if you love learning, also even someone who's just new to wine will bring a perspective that you've never thought about. And they'll ask you a question that goes, oh, like that has nothing that would be traditionally related to the industry, so I've never considered how it impacts it, but actually it does. Mm -hmm. um, I think I think that part's super important. What were your first impressions of the Oregon wine industry, both the wines themselves and the and the people, as you started to meet and drink the meet the people and drink the wines here? First impressions, I think I didn't realize how lucky I was to get into the wine industry in Oregon. I think probably a lot of people don't. Um, it's so much about, it's still so much about community here and helping other people and, oh, we don't have a forklift, can we borrow yours? Um, hey, can we do a tonnage exchange and I'll take a ton of your grapes, you take a ton of my grapes and we'll do like side-by-side -side bottlings or we'll just, that'll be for the staff and we'll get to compare different winemaking techniques. And I was tasting Oregon wine and going, oh yeah, like this is great quality Pinot, but 
the world of wine, because this is the shortcoming of wine education, is you want to get the whole, the whole world, right? And you go, oh, okay, so I want all, I want Sangiovese, I want Nebbiolo, I want a Chenin Blanc, and I want it from all over the world. And that seems more exciting than the place you're actually in. But in reality, if you went back, the producers that you get to see are oftentimes more exciting in the region because they're developing and they're finding their style and you can talk to them and you can understand their philosophy and you can understand what their vineyard's like and what they're doing in the vineyard and you had to ask them questions because you're on the ground. And, uh, and I didn't take, I took advantage of it, but I didn't take as much advantage of it as I could have. Now, obviously, I get to do that a lot. Um, but I don't think I really, I don't think I realized how lucky I was. Initial impressions were Oregon wine is great, and I'm really excited about Barolo. <laughs> like, and now I love Barolo, but Oregon wine is super exciting, and diversity is increasing, quality is still super high. Price is going up, but I think it should. The quality of farming is still, I think more than anything, the quality of farming is really good here and people care and it's on such a small scale that your winemaker is a lot of times spending a couple days out in the vineyard pruning and then going back in. And um, as, you, as you scale, you just don't see that as much and there becomes a divorce between the winery and the vineyard. And that is one of my least favorite things. <laughs> I'm curious as you as you started to get the informal wine education, as you started to, to again the, the kind of the meeting people and starting starting to work in the industry, how did it how was it similar and how was it different to your formal wine education? What did you what did you what was expected that happened and then what was sort of unexpected about actually being in a wine region and starting to learn it from the inside? There's there's so much of a difference between I was I was uh, with Deanna from Ahivoy this morning, and we were talking about technical education versus classroom education and how important they both are, but how classroom education leaves a lot to be desired. Four-year degrees aren't for everyone. You can get out of a four-year degree at UC Davis and not know what a pump looks like. Um, so going into production, and I knew that because I'd read WSET textbooks and I thought, these are really great, but man, they're dry. <laughs> and so that was the whole uh, push to write a harvest journal was, I thought it was dry and I had the opportunity to go work in a winery. I wasn't far on my, in my career, I wasn't giving anything up. Um, I could always go back to restaurants and I thought, well, I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna see the richness of the lived experience and then I'm going to document it for other people so they know what actually working in a winery would look like. Um, so that's on the production end, but more and more I think that we can read about pest and disease management and we can, people, people overlook viticulture way too much in formal education. It's about geography, um, we can name soils, you can name grape varieties, 
but people aren't looking as much at the way people farm. Um, and that's super important. And the people who farm. And who, who is picking? Who's your, who's your predominant labor force? Is it mechanized or is it handwork? Um, and the education of the labor force and how they're treated. Um, so the, the further you get away from textbooks and into informal education, the more you realize that everything's linked to a human being. <laughs> before, I want to ask about your harvest journal, but I have one question before we get to that. Your first harvest experience, the year before, the lingua franca, tell me about that. What was it like doing a harvest for the first time? Um, it was the most fun I've ever had in my life. I, it was, oh goodness, I'm still, I still keep in contact with everyone except for one person from that harvest. We were a small team. Um, Lingua Franca has grown a lot since initially I worked for them. But it was their seller master now, Joe, and then a guy who is the seller master at Rene Rostang now, his name is Antoine. Um, Sid, I have no idea where he ended up. Adam, who was a sommelier at Purple and now is at uh, K Vintners. And um, I'm like, I'm sure I'm forgetting someone and I don't. Joe, Sid, Adam, Antoine and I. No, that was it. And it was a small team. It was 2018, so honestly it was pretty easy vintage. It was pretty light. Um, fruit came in really clean. Everybody's gone, oh man, we've like, Harvest is so hard in 2018. I was like, this is the best. It's like summer camp. We get to all hang out together. We get to make wine. We have dinners. And then I worked Harvest in 2019 too. And I was like, oh, I understand. It's, uh, it's harder some years. But that initial vintage was, I, I've worked five now. And that initial vintage was still the most fun, the best connections. Um, best food, <laughs> like the most camaraderie, mm -hmm. uh, and friends that I speak to at least, at least every two weeks. If I hadn't worked my initial vintage for Lingua Franca, I don't know if I'd have continued in production, and if I didn't continue in production, I'd never have started writing for Jancis. Mm -hmm. So really lucky in that. I've talked to a lot of people who did not have that much fun their first vintage. Luck of the draw sometimes. Oh yeah, that one was, was really good. Very lucky. When it came to the work itself, when it did, when, the, when there was actually work to be done, uh, what were your, what did you, what were your reactions to the work? Uh, obviously, it's, it's kind of monotonous, it's kind of repetitive, but you enjoyed it. Oh, it's monotonous and repetitive if you're at a winery that approaches it that way or that is at such a scale that you're given one job. But when you're at a winery that was the size the Lingua Franca was in 2018, you are given a number of jobs. <laughs> it's like you can be up in the lab, you can be uh, monitoring white wine fermentations, you can be doing pump overs or punch downs. And for someone who is going in completely fresh, it was, it was like, it was so much information. And Joe, the cellar master, was so patient. He's such a good teacher. His wife is in 
education, and I think that's part of it. <laughs> Molly talks to him, and then he is like a good teacher because of his closeness her, to her, maybe. But so patient. All my questions were answered, um, and I have so many questions. You you saw before the interview. I want to know what everybody's doing at all times and why they're doing it. Um, so it's just constant, like why, 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 and. It, at times it would be like we have to wait till the end of the day and then we'll get into this. But I think even if I'd worked somewhere else, it wouldn't have been nearly as good. But and if the tasks had been monotonous, that would be okay. Mostly it's just the information that you're given. Mm -hmm. If I like if I have if I have access to the the information at the end of the day for everything that's going on, I will do monotonous tasks. <laughs> the information is the reward. <laughs> I like that. So I, so you obviously you, you had interest in doing Harvest again and in continuing it. Where did the interest come from for documenting it and, and sharing it with, sharing it with the, uh, the world? Uh, why, why did you pitch that and what made you even consider to, to do that? Well, I was going through WSCT diploma at the time, and like I said, textbooks were fairly dry, if awesome information, just dry. Um, and I figured if I had those questions and I had that problem, other people would as well. And I was reading chances all the time. I had I'd submitted a travel journal for her in 2019 before the Harvest Journal. And it was doc and it was shortlisted. And so the moment it was shortlisted, I was like, I've got a shot. And I'd found Richard Hemming's Harvest Journals, and those had been helpful with WSET diploma because I was reading them, and he's super funny. But I was reading them, and I was going, Oh, okay, I get it. Like I, I get a little bit more what it's about. And but he also wasn't as technical of a writer and so there was humor but there were some things that I missed and I was like I can I can fill in some of the technical information that I didn't get through this very humorous amusing easy to read one so I don't think mine were nearly as funny or interesting as his but for people who wanted specific deep dive information for diploma I had a number of emails that said hey I have a question on this and then I could go back and ask winemakers about that You talked earlier about the we talked earlier about the kind of informal versus formal education. So when you were writing these, when you were when you were considering the project and you were started to write them, uh, what was your thinking in terms of your readership? Who, who you, you mentioned you had emails, you, you you were corresponding with some of your readers. Who were your readers going to be, and what was it important for you to impart? My readers were other diploma students, WSET level three students. I never thought that it would be anyone else, actually. Um, I got a couple people who were not were not that, and I was very surprised. I actually had a perception that all JancisRobinson.com readers were uh, were students of wine, and somehow I slightly detached this from the consumer for a while. And we recently had surveys go out, and it was like, oh no, like the vast majority of people are wine collectors, wine drinkers, people who have a little bit of knowledge or have been reading Jancis for 20 years, but they've never actually worked in the wine industry. And that was, I consider her such a 
trade publication for the US, that mm -hmm. that was a surprise to me. And I've definitely modified my writing style since Harvest Journals to accommodate that. Mm -hmm. It still is a struggle sometimes because, and I get, I get uh, feedback from her on this once in a while. She'll say, hey, you said we when referring to producers again. <laughs> that's the side that I identified with for so long that it's still, I still come at it from that way. And yeah, it's, a, it's funny. It's a bit political, actually. Which side will you be on, right? I mean, which side, which side you identify with? Both. Um, I understand why we are a consumer publication for JancisRobinson.com. But when I say political, you have so many stakeholders as a writer, and I never considered that before my position was permanent. Um, you need to be fair to producers. You need to provide your editor with something that is useful for them um, and interesting for the consumer. You have to be honest with yourself. Um, and you have to yeah, provide content for the consumer so that they're, if they buy based on your recommendation, it's not because you liked a person. And that always has to be true. It has to be good wine before anything else. Um, but sometimes when the hardest thing is when you when you love a producer and you taste through their lineup and it it doesn't hold water and you go okay so I can't really use that like I don't want to I don't want to throw someone under the bus but I also can't speak to the consumer about these wines and highly recommend them mm -hmm. and that that stinks when you love a producer and you can't do that for them. But at the same time, if you were to publish like a, nobody does it well in this business by throwing other people under the bus, ever. So the Harvest Journals, as you started to, as you started to write them, as you got, you got, you got, you got the project going, uh, tell me about the experience of, of going through and kind of documenting as you go. Was it something where you were going through the day thinking, what am I going to write about from today? What do I need to keep from today? Or was it where you got to a certain point and you just kind of wrote it all down as you remembered it? I mean, how did you kind of approach writing as you went? I wrote down what I did every single day. Um, I didn't write down the human part of it. I didn't write down um, like exactly for additions or for inoculations or any of that was, but I would write Today, uh, I had a, in my notes, in my phone, it was like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and it would be like Monday, uh, inoculated Chardonnay. Um, or, actually, we weren't inoculating so much as at, at the end we had to restart, but it would be like Monday, inoculated with Pied de, de Couve. Mm -hmm. So, native yeast that we'd started out earlier. And then I'd explain Pied de Couve, but inoculated, and then it would be like, ran bricks and temp on this, and did punch over punch downs and pump overs here so every day had what i'd done and then at the end of the week my deadline i think was always it was always fridays or saturdays but harvest is harvest you don't have any days off <laughs> so it was always like the night that it was due actually i don't think i've i think i've been one day early on a deadline once <laughs> 
and that's it. And then I've been one day late twice, but I'm always right at deadline. Um, I gotta get better at that. <laughs> so it was like midnight the night that it was supposed to be due that I was taking, and we hadn't had a break, so I had to write about the last day too. And I was like, well, if I have to still write about the last day, this could change my perception of what happened on Monday. So might as well just do it all at once, right? Probably not the best idea, but certainly what I did. <laughs> and what was the reaction to that? You mentioned getting feedback as you were doing it. Uh, was, did you get more than you expected? Did you get different than you expected? I don't know that I expected anything. And I didn't get a ton of feedback. I got, like, I think two or three students um, for the three harvest journals I wrote, one on Oregon, uh, one on Australia, and one on Napa Valley. Um, and I think I got like three students who emailed me total. And then I got some feedback on the forum that was just like really enjoying these. Mm -hmm. um, I remember my first harvest, that kind of thing. But I didn't, and I got feedback from chances, which was always encouraging. I was like, this is great. Even if her email, she has so little time. Her emails are short, but they were always super encouraging. And I think that was more of a driving force than anything else to keep writing. I don't, but I didn't expect massive feedback. I didn't honestly expect to be read all that much. I expected people would find me not when I was published, but later when they were looking something up mm -hmm. for a technical spec or for an example. So you mentioned that this was the there was this this Oregon one was the first of the Harvest Journals to come. So when you finished it, when you finished Harvest in 2019, what were you thinking about coming next? Had you what was your plan for the future at that point? Oh, I asked her halfway through if I could write another one. I was like, I want to go. I'm I'm not done. I want to go work Harvest again. I was. I had thought I was gonna. This is important too. I thought I was going to go back and order, open an approved program provider for WSET. The goal was always education. I thought it was going to be in-person classes. It ended up being writing. But the point was always consumer education and industry education and wanting to be a voice that did that and wanting to be in the spot where when you do education, you keep yourself as up to date on the industry as possible. It's very tempting in other positions, if you don't have to, to not constantly be consuming whatever is new and seeing trends and new uh, technology. And I wanted to know all the new things. <laughs> and so to putting myself in that position too, if I was writing about it, then I could ask all of the questions to winemakers. I could email random winemakers and be like, I heard you're doing this. Can you tell me about it? So that was lovely. And then I could, if, if they allowed it, I could share that information. So compare and contrast for me then the three, the three different harvest journals you kept, the three different places you worked harvest, uh, where you were keeping the journal. You mentioned uh, Australia. Yep. And then back in California. So tell me about the three of them. How did, how did the experiences compare for you and which, where, where, where did you prefer? What was your favorite parts of, of each? Um, Oregon was the most fun and the most intimate. 
and the most friendly community. Uh, Australia, I was in the Barossa Valley. There are producers there that look outside of Barossa, but it's a, a, quite an insular community, and people are often looking in, tasting their own wines against other wines in the region. It kind of felt like Barossa was the center of the world, which I did not love. Um, they make some brilliant wines, but the whole, that thought process, I'm like, but where do you pull your inspiration if you think you make the best in the world? Mm -hmm. You can't improve if you think you're the best. Um, that was frustrating. Also, the I came from a place where it was like, every question I asked was answered, and if it wasn't answered fully, it was, I have no idea, and people were just willing to go, I really don't know, like, you gotta ask someone else that question. And in Barossa, it was like, well, we do it because we've always done it this way. That was frustrating. Um, Napa was, I wrote a piece on my feelings about Napa Valley recently. I worked two harvests there. One was documented for Jancis Robinson, so I'm not gonna talk about the producer. The other one was for Harlan Promontory and Bond. And the initial one that was documented on Jancis Robinson, it was a good experience. Um, I liked the wines that were made. I learned a lot, like technical-wise. I had worked three vintages at that point, and my questions had changed a lot, so they were a lot more about additions and why this chem and why this fermentation temperature. And um, I was working with a winemaker who was super, he, I actually think he was a bit OCD. Everything was, you could eat off of it in the winery. It was so clean. I've never seen a cleaner uh, production facility. And everything, every ad, every temperature was super well thought out. So I learned a lot from him about that. But it was COVID and the team wasn't super close. Um, and that is one of the aspects of winemaking that I really love is the, is the team. So I still keep in contact with a couple of them, but nowhere near as much as in Oregon. The last team though, the Harlan Promontory and Bond team was, it's like my first harvest with Lingua Franca was amazing and my last harvest for now. We'll see if there's another one in the future, but it's not looking like anything immediate on the horizon. It's kind of a conflict of interest to work for someone at this point. That was, I think, one of the best experiences I will have in my life. The team was close, but more than anything, it was the most empowered I've ever felt as an individual in production and viticulture. It was like your opinion mattered. They wanted your opinion. And it wasn't me, just me. It was other interns. It was vineyard stewards. They have something called the Vine Master Program, which is incredible, um, where every, you have to, you have to go into the program and graduate from a curriculum that they've set up um, that encompasses pruning and irrigation and leaf pulling and all these other aspects of viticulture. But after that, when you go into your own block, which is like 2.5 acres-ish, you make the decisions in conjunction with a vineyard manager, but it gives you the direct access to the vineyard manager instead of a crew lead. 
And so you have those conversations, you make those decisions, and that just ran through the entire company. As you had ownership of whatever project you were given. No one was breathing down your neck. No one was checking on your progress. It was like they needed it by a certain date. We'll check in on next week. You can ask me questions if you need to, but this is your responsibility and you have complete ownership over it. I've never, I've never been in a company like that. <laughs> it's pretty, pretty cool. With that kind of uh, empowerment for, for everyone, uh, did it work? I mean, was it, was, was it a successful operation and, and how did it work? It worked incredibly well. Um, it's expensive, but that's an expensive, they're running on an expensive model. Those wines are very expensive to empower your people like that and uh, put that much into education is pricey. And at the end of it, you have to pay them to retain them, like good wages. But that is, I think that's how we continue with world-class wine for any region is you will have to, if you want handwork, you're going to have to pay for it. You're gonna to have to provide education. You're gonna to have to give people ownership. Um, and if you don't, they're probably gonna leave and we're gonna end up mechanizing and we're just gonna go two different ways. Um, there might be some in between, but when I think of really inspiring projects, it's usually people who want to be involved in all spec all aspects of the business. Um, so, I, I mean, it's Oregon, so I think about John Thomas a lot and how small that project is and how he watches everything through vineyard to bottling the wine to dropping it off to people. Um, and we can't all go that crazy and things do have to operate at some amount of scale. <laughs> but in the grand scheme of things, I do think you're going to have to People are gonna to have to figure out, instead of large groups of people tasked with something monotonous, you give someone an area or break it up somehow and then give them a range of uh, decisions that they get to make in everything. Otherwise, like, let people make decisions, let them have ownership. You will keep them longer. I also think that's why Harlan Estate has so little turnover. <laughs> people want to work there, but nobody ever leaves. <laughs> <laughs> Never any place to be hired, right? Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. Makes sense. If, uh, if only we could all charge that much for a bottle of wine. But I do think that wine, like wine will have to get a bit pricier, um, unless you want to mechanize everything, and that's that's fine for a daily drinker. But if when you get to making wine on massive scales and having it all t have to be the same pH, and you take a mechanical harvester through, fill a ten-ton tank, ferment it, put it in, monitoring the whole time, sugar levels and pH, and of course all of that, but then targeting certain numbers. You go, then it becomes a beverage, like beer or like Coca-Cola. That's fine. That's just not the most interesting wines in the world. It's clear that you were 
you were approaching the project and kind of approaching your career in wine from a very, from a kind of unique or a thoughtful perspective and not just to write about, but also you were obviously processing these kinds of things as you were learning them. I'm curious, before you came back to Jansis full time, were there issues you saw, things you saw that you felt you needed to write more about or, or had a long-term vision of, of bringing to people's mind, bringing to people's eyes that you hadn't had a chance to yet? Were there things that you'd seen in your experiences, there things you just like, I need to write about this, this is, a, this is a big important part of wine that I can't talk about yet? Or was there anything like that that you were just sort of needing to talk about? Yeah, definitely. Um, the first piece that I wrote that was outside of Harvest Journal was on pruning. Um, and it was following my first Harvest Journal. And I think that trend has kind of continued with I like to write about viticulture. I think it's the least talked about in terms of the media. And I do always need to remember that we're a consumer publication, and it's the thing that the consumer can't touch. Uh, they go to a winery to go tasting. They're shown the tank room. So few people take people out to the vineyard and say, hey, this is, this is our vineyard. This is how we prune. Because it's harder to link it back to the glass and say, you can say, oh, hey, we fermented an oak. This tastes like oak. Um, but it's very hard to say, hey, we pruned this way. It tastes like we pruned this way. Like, you can't, I can't tell the way someone pruned. I, you can kind of, at some point, you go, oh, maybe this person cropped really heavy. Or maybe this, is, mm -hmm. this tastes really high quality. It was probably a, uh, they probably cropped lower or in balance with what they wanted to achieve. But it is the hardest thing to put back in the glass and then tell the consumer about. So it's the thing that's least covered, but I think it's super important. Um, and it it's very much linked to labor and the labor shortage that we're currently experiencing and treating your people well. <laughs> so. When it comes to viticulture specifically, um, you've obviously seen all kinds, all, all kinds of viticulture, all kinds of all kinds of environments. What do you find yourself gravitating toward when it comes to viticultural practices? What, as a as a consumer, as a writer, what what excites you? So I have I have to lead with a caveat, which it, I'll tell you, and then I'll tell you the caveat. <laughs> of course, of course, organic, biodynamic. Um, high-touch, small operations for vineyards, um, no-till, and focus on cover crop. Love seeing animals brought into the vineyard. I love it when you walk in and you're like, oh, this is a, a whole little ecosystem. Um, the caveat is the consumer doesn't see that, and that's not how we treat the rest of our food system. So it's really unrealistic to say, you know, you need to consider this in your wine, but when you go to the grocery store and you buy a red pepper, you never think about that. And some people buy food at the farmer's market, and then that doesn't extend through to wine buying, and I think that doesn't make sense. But it, for the vast majority of people, it's like wine is part of our food supply, so you consider it as like you need to consider it 
as you would consider any other agricultural product. Mm -hmm. And so if that, those decisions aren't worrying to you, then I wouldn't be over cons overly concerned about it in wine. For me, yeah, of course, I love highlighting people who work organically um, or biodynamically. I love highlighting people who take care of their people, have full-time vineyard teams. Um, but the wine has to be good. That has to be the first thing because that's what the consumer sees. So you recently got hired back at Jazz Robinson. Congratulations, by the way. Thank you. Uh, tell me about how that came about and about new responsibilities or your current responsibilities now that you're back full time. Um, so I'll say I'm not technically full time. I don't do anything else, though. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still structured as a freelance employee. Um, but I do write twice a week, which is when you consider all the interviews and background research and emails that need to be sent, that is a full-time job. Um, so, and once in a while I'll teach things or um, do mostly teach things, and I study for MW. But other than that, that is, that is what I do. Um, how that happened. So, I had been contributing regularly since 2019, and I think Jancis was acquired by Recurrent, and Recurrent is a larger parent company. They also own Savour, Field and Stream, other publications. So there was an influx of cash. They want to target the American market. Uh, we didn't have anyone full-time in the U.S. And immediate coverage, you go well, west coast because yes, we have wine on the east coast, we have wine in the middle of the country, but we need someone. This is where things get exported. If you're looking at a global pu publication, you want people in California, Oregon, and Washington. Um, one person, Elaine does a stellar job, but even they can't cover the entire west coast really adequately if they're working full time. And they also educate and do interviews and moderate. Um, so that was not going to happen. <laughs> so they needed help. Um, Elaine was brought on as full time for US executive editor, but mostly covers California. Mm -hmm. And then it was Oregon and Washington and needing coverage. And so Jancis knew. I've, I had always been fairly forward. When she asked me what I wanted to do, I was like, well, eventually I'd like to work for you. <laughs> so this was my goal from the outset. I told her that. I think um, she enjoyed that and the fact that I was very loyal to the site and to, it's like the Oxford Companion of Wine and the World Atlas of Wine are your most referenced materials if you're a wine student. So that was what I wanted to be a part of. <laughs> And I think she chooses her writers um, carefully and more, I think this is her as a person too. Uh, you have to be empathetic and professional. You also have to want more than the top story. Um, we're not usually first to stories. Mm -hmm. 
Like we don't publish. Wine Spectator is awesome if you want news. Um, we don't generally publish the news. We'll come out two weeks later with a story that has 10 different interviews considering a bunch of perspectives on the subject. Um, it's much more of a deep dive and academically based. And I enjoyed that. As far as new responsibilities, since I was brought on as Pacific Northwest specialist, it's just a lot more writing. Um, prior, I was writing once every couple weeks when I was in production for Harlan Promontory and Bond Last Vintage. And Harvest Journals were every week or every other week, but for mm -hmm. three months. Um, and now it's twice a week, every week. Or this week, it'll only be once, once that I send her material this week. I might scale back a little bit as I approach MW exam, but for the most part, twice a week, every week. And there are many contributors who are uh, putting as much content forward as I am. And most contributors have another job as well. So I am covering, I will be covering once in a while regions that are not my specialty. Um, yeah, so I'm excited for the opportunity to do that too. Wines of the Week, I also get to, to participate in Wines of the Week, which is one of my favorite because I get to go outside of Oregon and I get to talk to producers in Spain and uh, Loire Valley are the two that I've done so far, but then I'll keep moving around the world and I get to talk to other winemakers as well as Oregon. Sometimes what they're doing is incredible. I talked to Mireya, this, this uh, wine of the week will come out tomorrow, but I talked to Mireya at Alta Alela um, and her family makes cava and they have for a while, they started organic. Cava has to be organic at reserve level or higher um, as of two years, three years from now. Um, so everybody who hasn't converted is in the conversion process if they want to make high level wine. But it's just things like that, or the fact that she took the five mother plants and then she crossed them with uh, a lab in Switzerland with disease resistant varieties and are, is growing a small vineyard from seed. And you think about that, and then you come back and you visit producers in Oregon, and you go, if you want to talk to someone about that, like I know someone else who could. And I think that's another thing, another responsibility. Um, is if you get to talk to as many people as I do, then when you hear about someone else who wants to do the same thing, it is, it is your job to connect them so that they have more access to information on that. I feel that. I feel that very much. So now that you have, a, you have, a, you have kind of a beat, you have, a, you have an area, a large geographical and hugely diverse area oh, to cover, yeah. Tell me about stories. Then, are you? Are they mostly coming to you? Are they mostly being directed? Are you being directed to do things? Are you, are you mostly coming up with stories on your own? And what are you finding to be the the most interesting things you're you're excited excited to cover? I always come up with stories on my own. I have been pitched things from other people once, maybe twice. I think it was just once. I thought that it was a good enough idea that I turned around and pitched it to Jancis. And uh, I 
don't know. She knows. She knows if the idea isn't mine, and she she's not interested. <laughs> so everything that I have generated has been my idea, um, and the most interesting things are viticulture, labor, things that haven't been covered, um, unique perspectives. So. I have, it's like for Wines of the Week, it's one thing. You're, it's a profile on someone. Then I'm looking for people whose farming I love and who make really good wine and are distributed in the US and the UK, um, <laughs> which is a nightmare sometimes, but also gives you a better perspective of the world marketplace. Um, but for other things, it's, uh, I have a piece coming out soon on Seth Morgan Long. I don't think there are many people who have started a business as a one-man label um, and, and made a success of it with no outside investment. So that was super interesting to me, how you build a label with one person, what the finances look like, how, how, uh, how you have to consider debt and all of that. So I enjoyed doing that. Um, there haven't been an overwhelming number of pieces about labor, so I've done quite a few pieces on that. Things that we ask why in the wine industry, and there's no really good answer. <laughs> so why do we have vineyard management companies and the rest of the world largely doesn't have those. They're just starting to develop, and mostly it'll be one thing. So it's like Simone and Search, sure. But they're more educational than anything, so they'll come and educate your team on how to prune better or how to prune to their style. But for the most part, you're like, we are the hub of vineyard management companies. How did that happen? And. So I wrote a piece on that. And it's like, well, actually, it happened because we're a very capitalist country, and we had a tax loophole. Um, and you could hide earnings from, I don't want to say that about all, all vineyards, because a lot of them came up naturally because people really wanted to go into ag. But for some people, it did start because they could use losses, passive losses, against their active income and deduct the whole thing. So it was kind of a tax shelter. <laughs> um, yeah, I think, I guess that's the answer. Anything that intrigues me and goes, why in the world? Or we had a CO2 shortage last year in Northern California. I think we had one here as well. And it was like, why do we have a CO2 shortage? Why can't I find dry ice? Oh, it's because refineries are closing down because of environmental regulations, but also because we had less in demand during COVID. So I wrote a piece on that. Of course, that's not always interesting <laughs> to someone who just wants a good glass of wine. Um, but those are things that are super interesting to me. And they can usually be led into, like the one on vineyard management companies. Then I went and looked at people who are bringing their, um, their crew in-house. And then I can write an article on in-house wineries and review wines, and that will be interesting to the consumer.
You talked about unique perspectives as something you look for. Uh, who has unique perspectives? In your mind, what, what, are, what are the usual perspectives we see and who, who has the unique perspectives that you're hoping to highlight? I mean, I've mentioned some of the people. It's hard because it's always, it'll be someone I go and interview and they'll say something that I would never have considered and then I'll end up going back and interviewing them. Um, it, I think it does happen more when talking to people who are intimately involved in viticulture because we study that less in textbooks. At least if you started from a consumer standpoint, which I did, and you're working your way back, this is the thing you see least. So you don't know that legumes are har harnessing nitrogen. That's, to me, that's interesting enough to write. You go, okay, well, cover crop. Like, what kind of cover crop do I need for um, if I have this soil deficiency? And that can then, that will impact your fruit enough that then when it goes into the winery, you have, you've changed your yeast assimilable nitrogen levels. That kind of thing, and then you don't need or you don't need um, yeast holes or nutrition or as much. Maybe you still need a refermato, maybe you still need a little bit. But if you go through the whole process and you go, okay, well, this year we needed this much, so next year we're going to plant legumes. That kind of mentality makes me want to go interview someone more when they go, oh, well, we, we did this and then it impacted fruit quality and so we worked back, um, our way back to winemaking. I was reading part of your most recent piece about sort of the idea of diversification in the Willamette Valley. Uh, obviously, it's something that's been a big topic that we've heard about ourselves in the interviews we've done over the years. Pinot Noir has been the thing for so long. What's next? So I'm curious, your perspective on that and the perspective of the people you spoke with uh, where does Pinot Noir stand now to you as Oregon's sort of premier wine grape and, and what is coming next and, and from your perspective? I love Pinot Noir. I hope that it is always planted in this valley. Um, but I think the fact that we are now at 70% Pinot Noir plantings is a bit much. Um, I think we've planted it in places that aren't ideally suited and that could do better with a different variety. Um, I think that consumer tastes are changing and people are more open to that. So what's next? I don't know. Uh, if you, if you want to look at the Golden Cluster portfolio, it's like Semion could be next. If you want to look at limited edition, they've got Menthea and Chenin Blanc uh, and Gruner. If David Hill has... This was really interesting. I don't know if it is what's next or if it's let's go back and see what we did previously that maybe didn't work at the time, but now it's, our temperature has gone up enough and we have enough heat during the growing season that we can go back and plant some of these things we didn't previously think we could. Because um, the Irie, I was talking to Jason, the Irie didn't start as Pinot Noir. It started as cool climate varieties. And so there were a ton of things planted. They didn't get rid of those. They kept 
like Jason's still planting new things. Mm -hmm. And, but people took his father's success with Pinot Noir and just ran with it and just planted Pinot Noir. And this has benefited us a ton because we've become known for world-class Pinot. And I've talked to some vineyard managers who are like, no, it should be 70% Pinot Noir. You don't get the level of quality if you don't specialize. And I think that's a great argument, but we know how to make Pinot Noir to world-class quality now. Um, and you will have entry-level Pinot Noir even if you scaled back to 60, 50% of the valley instead of 70. And you'll have more drinking options, and I think it's really important to cultivate. Who was I? I was reading an interview with someone the other day, and I wish I remembered who it was, who said, I'm really excited that during the pandemic, Oregon Wine Board focused marketing on people within Oregon. And we started selling more wine to Oregonians instead of out of state because we don't have, make enough wine to scale. And that's interesting to me, but if you're gonna have, if you're going to please all the palates in Oregon, or even give someone a white, or a sparkling a white and a red and a sweet for dinner for different pairings, then you have to do different things. Um, and I do think at this point, if you go tasting at three wineries in one day and someone pours you something that's not Pinot Noir, it is exciting because you've had a lot of Pinot Noir that day. Uh, so even if every winery was doing one, one thing that was outside Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, and Pinot Gris, you'd see way more diversity in this valley. And I think you would have demand for it too. Maybe not on the international marketplace, but in the community marketplace. So in terms of your writing, uh, as you're looking ahead, uh, rest of you know, rest of this year upcoming, what are some of the other things you're looking forward to exploring more and, and what are some of the, the stories you're looking forward to telling? So, um, I have two answers. I have some things that I think need to be done. I need to do sub-AVA profiles. The first one, I was really ambitious. I decided to start with Dundee Hills because I was like, oh, I'm the most historic growing region in the Willamette Valley. And now I have that too on April 12th. So I just did an all call for wine. I'm like, oh my God, there's so much to explore in this sub-AVA though. Um, so I look forward to tasting all the wines for that. And then I'll go back through the TTB and see what it was initially proposed on and contact some of the people who helped found that sub-AVA. But in terms of what I'm excited about, beyond tasting wine and talking about sub-AVAs that are pretty well established, um, new perspectives, people who lift up their team, uh, cooperative wineries, custom crush facilities, I'd love to do a piece on Custom Crush. I think it is the only way that new, new labels, if they don't have money behind, much money behind them, get started. Um, I still haven't found someone who started a label out of Custom Crush, though, and like had started growing a little plot first and then taken their 
route to custom crush just trying to find someone if you if anyone watches and like, says oh i just took my fruit for the first time through custom crush i want to talk to you um and i'm excited to see more people write on viticulture because it's starting to happen i'm not the only one who thought oh that doesn't get covered enough there's so many people who've thought that in the last couple of years and are now covering viticulture um, and it's becoming, it's to the point now where I think maybe, maybe we will see vineyard managers and maybe we'll see crews on the cover of Wine Spectator if they want to be. Um, and that would be just highlighting everybody's contribution to wine and not just focusing on the winemaker. They're super important, but you're like, you're driving the company. You're not. You're not doing everything in it. So giving credit where credit is due. Empowering people. Giving them ownership. Yeah. You've brought up a couple of times the you're working through the the MW right now. So tell me about progress with that, uh, and. Is this the final part of the MW that you're starting for now? No, okay. I have just started. Okay. Um. I think I keep mentioning it because it's weighing on my brain because I haven't gotten to study nearly as much as I should be. I've got three and some months left before the exam and it's a really intense study program and generally people don't start new awesome jobs right before they go into that because it takes up quite enough time on its own, um, especially jobs that are as as all-encompassing where you don't ever really go home from work. You're always checking your email or talking to someone or making room for an interview, calling someone you don't know to ask them because someone told you they were doing something. Um, so I haven't had a ton of time to study for that and that's why I keep, keep bringing it up <laughs> is because I'm really nervous about it. There's a good chance, I tell my family this and they're like, oh no, you've always gotten through every exam. And I'm like, yeah, but you don't understand. Every exam up till this one, I've studied my butt off first, and this is the first time I don't have time to. So uh, I'm going to do my very best to get through year one. And if I don't, I'm going to hope that I fail well enough that I get to retake year one instead of getting it kicked out of the program. But the, the goal would be to uh, pass through year one. And then it's still another two years after that. <laughs> As your job will not get any lighter as you go through, so it'll just be more... You know, no, it won't get lighter. I think it will get easier. I think I take a lot more time to write pieces right now than most people because I worry over every single word. Um, I also, Jancis is incredibly supportive of MW, obviously. She has like eight on staff. Um, but that means that more than most employers, she's willing to say, I said, hey, can I, instead of contributing twice a week, can I contribute once a week, May, June, and July? She said, yeah, of course you can do that. It'll give you more time to study. Now I need to not fill that time with other projects, though, which I'm really bad at doing. So, leave myself time to study every morning. That would be good.
It is a bit, it's giving up a bit though, because I do, there's so much to cover. You would think that you would, someone said, don't you run out of ideas? And I was like, no, never. There's always someone doing something new. There's always a new place to go. There's always a new ABA. There's something you taste and then you taste another version from the same ABA and you go, that's one of the most distinctive tastes, like flavors I've ever come across. I was in Washington a couple weeks ago and tasted in uh, the Rocks District. And or as, or as some people call the stones, <laughs> not the rocks. Um, and there's nothing that tastes like that Syrah. That is, you talk about terroir and yes, but sometimes farm to the point where it doesn't express, the rocks expresses. It, I don't know if people just, it's so small that there are few enough people farming that they're farming in a similar way, but always that fruit tastes distinctive. Mm -hmm. So, always more ideas. <laughs> so you haven't been in the Oregon wine industry for, for terribly long, but you, you've already, I'm assuming, already seen some things change and seen some sort of trends coming. What are the changes you've noticed in, inside of Oregon wine, and what do you see as you look ahead for the future of the industry? In the last couple of years, I mean, we all know people have been selling. And I think it's a positive that we see people selling to smaller corporate interests um, rather than very large ones. But you, still, you said earlier, uh, Jackson family, although I think they do an incredible job on retaining teams and giving people benefits and implementing environmental sustainability to a point that a winery didn't have the budget for beforehand. It's still not my favorite thing to see people be acquired. Um, like it hurts less when it's Jackson family than when it's Constellation. I don't know if I should say that one. But it's, um, I'm hoping that people hold on to ownership and pass it to the next generation again. It just seems that the more, the, the larger people get a lot of the time or the more uh, corporate, then your stakeholder is your investor instead of your employee. And, um, if we do start to see more corporate, I hope that they consider the employee as the stakeholder as well as the investor. More trends for the future. Um, I think we'll see a couple more custom crush facilities pretty soon. I think there's room for it. Um, I think the price of land will continue to go up. I need to buy a house. <laughs> I hope it doesn't get too high. <laughs> um, what else? I just, I love Napa, but I hope we don't get as corporate as Napa has to the point where it's hard for people to hold on to their interests even when they want to keep them. 
it's one thing when people want to sell, um, but when people feel pressured into selling because the market will give them more than they will ever make in their lifetime, or like for 10 generations, mm -hmm. that hurts a bit. <laughs> like, I think we undervalue, uh, undervalue our food system, including wine quite a bit, and we're not willing to pay people the real cost for what they do. And then I don't know what it is when things aren't in a corporate portfolio where they do better, but I guess it would be marketing. Mm -hmm. Like maybe we'll see more, more marketing that is focused on more smaller brands rather than large brands. That would be good. I think that's necessary. There's some really good PR companies here. What about for your own future? Obviously, we've talked a little bit about projects upcoming and things like that. You've already done a lot. You have a lot on your plate. Uh, do you have long-term ambitions for for other things? Do you, uh, you mentioned production as something perhaps to get back into? Do you do you have long-term ambitions to be in different parts of the industry? You know, um, I had I had so many ambitions. I've gotten this is like an end goal for a lot of people. I love working for Jancis. I love writing. I think for the future, I would like to learn how to balance my life a bit better, um, and to take weekends once in a while, which is entirely me not being able to manage my own work schedule and needing to learn how to do it. Um, in terms of production, yeah, I have, so, I have so many ideas for businesses that I think this valley needs, that this country needs, that <laughs> that would be beneficial to wine and humans, but I do have a lot to do at the moment, and I'm focused on producing good content, um, gaining wider readership, inspiring people to focus on farming as well as winemaking, um, and to value people. And I hope, I hope that I can shine a light on those types of projects uh, and encourage people to drink those. And maybe you pay more for those bottles, and then you drink beer or cocktails for the rest of the week, and you drink wine two days a week. And we hear this constantly. It's like people are people are freaking out because it's like, oh, wine is wine is decreasing in market share, and we're losing ground to seltzer. Maybe that's not the most terrible thing if people are drinking at a higher price point, and that enables people to pay their workers more and charge. They charge more per bottle. They pay people more. They focus on farming more. Um, they get to maybe have less inputs, less fertilizers, they don't have to crop as heavy, they can have balanced farming ecosystem and happy employees, um, and seltzer can be made cheaply <laughs> because it's sparkling water with alcohol. <laughs> like It's not nearly as expensive to produce as wine is. Does that answer your question? What was your question? I've forgotten. It's a, it's a great question. What was my question? Your, fu your, your, your future oh. ambition. Yeah, okay. So I'd like to keep writing for now. Eventually, maybe I 
I have like a two-acre vineyard that I get to work, do the handwork on sometimes. I don't know. I don't know if that'll ever be as possible. I also have this ambition of partnering with someone to buy a warehouse and then buy wine in barrel. Not bulk wine, like really good quality wine that has never been put in bottle but might be an older vintage. And then having like a delivery system like the Milkman would, where you have a bottling line and a sanitation line. And you have these barrels, they're bottled, they're dropped off to people's homes, the bottles are recollected, go back to the facility, and there's another bottling run that happens. That would be cool, it'll only serve a community. <laughs> it's not something, I think it would be scalable, but I wouldn't wanna <laughs> scale it, and I also don't think I'm the person to implement it. Or an app, I'd love to work with someone who does app design to, this isn't even wine related, it's like food related. We live in McMinnville. There's a lot of food grown down here. Farmers market in Portland go in year round. We only have a seasonal farmers market down here. But the people who are up there selling food in winter, a lot of times grow their food down here. So that, I'm like, okay, so how do we make it worth your while? If people aren't gonna come to the farmers market, can we do CSAs? CSAs don't run in the winter down here. Uh, CSFs, which are community-supported fisheries, and connecting people to food source and local farms, local fisheries, local dairies. Um, be really cool to have all that on an app and give you the convenience of Amazon. God, I hate that company. <laughs> give you the convenience of Amazon, but while supporting local producers directly and supporting your community and putting money back into it. No shortage of ideas for that either. Oh I no, like so it. many ideas. <laughs> so little time. <laughs> I think for now I just write <laughs> and teach when I have time to do that. And study. And study. All about education. That's the good stuff for myself and for other people. So the last question for you. Um, you have, a, as we talked about, kind of a unique perspective, uh, one that's very similar to ours in terms of talking to lots of people, doing lots of interesting things. And I think you have an interesting answer to this question. So tell me about, from your perspective, what the role of wine is in society, what role it plays in society, and if you see that changing in the future. I think wine has two roles. I think for the average consumer, it's like, okay, it's a luxury item in some ways, but it can be a luxury item at like 12 bucks and that it just makes you feel like the end of your day is a sigh out of relief and you get to drink something delicious. Um, and I think that's the place, whether that be from like 10 bucks to 60 bucks where people's threshold is for daily drinker, but I, I love that and the pairing with food and something to end your day with. The other spot it occupies very much is, is in a luxury good and a status symbol. And no, I don't love that, but I think that that is the, that price point and that, uh, 
symbology is what drives the whole industry up. If you can charge 500 bucks for a bottle, that means your neighbor two doors over can probably charge 125. And if you can get that price, then, and someone can afford to pay that price, then that will allow you to continue producing bottles too at 30 bucks. Um, I think that the way the Willamette Valley prices is insane and is just starting to get to the point where you're actually charging enough to give you. If we look at 2020, 2020 was disastrous, but it wouldn't have been quite as disastrous, and I may not taste quite as many smoking wines um, if people had had padding. But the fact is, is that most people are priced so low that they have no padding to weather any kind of disaster. Napa, you go down, if you taste 2020 in Napa, it's usually pretty, I was talking to Elaine about this the other day, it's usually pretty decent because people who weren't, people aren't making spoke wine because they can charge enough for their regular wine that they have a bit of padding. Um, they don't have to put something in the bottle. Now, then you get into like pricing and if we're making something unaffordable. You know, it's, I don't think we pay enough for food as a society. I think we put cheap and easy as a default. Um, we don't pay attention to where our clothes come from nearly enough. We don't pay attention to where our food comes from nearly enough. It used to be you saved for one pair of boots for a very long time. Now you can have 10 pairs of shoes for the same price that a pair of boots used to cost. I don't think that's real. Um, I, don't, I think there's someone suffering in that system and it's usually the labor force. So we can say 45 bucks is too much for a bottle of wine that I can't afford to pay it. But I think if you are willing to look at other expenses, um, how much money does the millennial generation spend on Instagram? I have no idea. Um, on things that you don't really need as much as you need food and clothes and like the necessities in life and be willing to pay more for good quality things and say, okay, well, I'll pay more for this good quality thing um, because I know that it warrants the cost. So it might be a splurge, 45 bucks, instead of what I used to pay at 20 or 30 bucks, I used to pay eight for a liter of bottom, bottom shelf at the grocery store. Um, but I think that's the way that we will have to go. We'll have to become a bit less price conscious on that end and be willing to supplement with things like beer, cocktails, seltzer. I'm not mad at the seltzer, <laughs> seltzer people. They can, they can make it so that we can charge more for wine so that people have other things to drink. Um, and can pay a bit more for wine when they're paying for cheaper seltzer on a daily daily basis. Um, I do want wine to be ex like still be accessible to people that don't have a massive budget, but I think that comes with 
paying the entire workforce more, which means charging more for your bottle. So it's all kind of cyclical. It's <laughs> a great answer. Thank you, thank you for that. I appreciate that. So all the questions that I have for you. Uh, is there anything that I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover here today that we should have covered? I don't think so. Mm -hmm. well, thank you, guys. Thank you very much for your time, for coming and joining us, uh, sharing your perspectives with us, and we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.